Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bow. And this week, we're celebrating the 10th irradiated anniversary of 4A Games' post-apocalyptic survival horror game, Metro Last Light. The world of Metro is based on Dmitry Glukhovsky's book series in which nuclear war sends humanity seeking refuge within the Russian metro system, while mutated monsters and anomalies have taken over the surface world. Last Light picks up a year after the events of Metro 2033 The Game, as we rejoin series protagonist Artyom, who was thought to have successfully destroyed the supernatural beings known as the Dark Ones. But this achievement is short-lived as war is brewing between the various factions that call the Metro home. So, personally for me, Metro has been a series that I've enjoyed quite a bit from, you know, the early days of the uh, sort of janky Euro vibes of the 2033 version, all the way through Metro Exodus. And I think my love and appreciation for Metro largely stemmed from my first, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic, open-world, Eastern European uh, developer sort of game of Stalker Shadow of Chernobyl, mm. which was, you know, one of my favorite games and still is one of my favorite games. But Metro scratched a very specific itch that those games never could, mostly by way of the fact that they were open-world, right? So yeah. you have an open-world like Stalker does, you're not going to be able to craft the same sort of intimate sort of texture, if you will, with the world and the environment. It's just far too big to be given that level of detail. Um, and I think that something like Metro, while more linear, um, it is the type of thing that in that linearity is able to really craft an atmosphere um, that I think just has a multitude of different sort of layers to it and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but I'm really curious, you know, what has your experience been with the Metro series? Because this is one that not only have we not talked about on the podcast before, but we've never talked about it, just you and I shooting the shit. Yeah. So there's some similar stories to other things I love in, you know, uh, it's one of those where as a game series, when I wanted to play it, I couldn't because it was on Xbox to begin with, which was a pain in the ass for the original game. So I, I ended up <laughs> starting at the second game, like so many franchises I have. Um, but before all that, I had read the books. And that was why I was so excited for the game because I thought, wow, you know, if they could even pull off half the cool stuff that happens in that book, it'd be amazing. Now, a lot of what goes into the Metro games, um, in terms of just sort of structuring them as a bunch of levels interconnected as they are, works perfectly for a game set underneath, you know, a city with a bunch of tunnels. Um, and like on the inside of the first book, there's like this, Simple picture, like some of the best books do this, you know, like Battle Royale has the gridded map of like where everything is on the island. You know, like that, ironically, that same map system would later be used in Battle Royale games, you know, because, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's stuff like that that's cool. Here, it's just like a, a metro map, you know, a map of what's here, what's there, and everywhere, and just sort of explains where this faction is in correlation to that faction and what's on this line, what's on that line. And such a simple picture gives you a really good idea of the sense of time, space, uh, and everything, you know, before you even get into the descriptions of what these groups are like and all like that. And that carries through into the games. You know, you have an awareness that not everybody is pulling the same way, despite everything that's happened. And the surface is given a reverence that games like Fallout don't really do once you're out on the surface it's like 
just that was, that's it. Yeah, you know, after that initial reveal. Whereas here in Metro uh, games and even even in the books, it, it is very much the idea that you'd be fucking mad to go up there. You might as well go to the ocean, yeah, you know, mm. and in a paddle boat. It is that kind of <laughs> feeling about what it's up there. So yeah, it, it's a really great series of books. Um, Glukowski's um, past as a, a journalist, you know, for places like Russia Today, you know, and. That, and he has lots of political insight that went into 2023, especially in the game terms. But obviously, Last Light sort of deviates from the path a bit. So it's not just saying, oh, well, you know, we did the 2023 game, let's do the 2034 game. No, they, they went and took a whole different path. And I think that actually benefits the Metro series that it did just take its own path after that initial game. Um, because I think it solved a few of the problems there. Yeah, you know, I think something I want to circle back to that you'd mentioned was the reverence for the surface world, right? Having that divide between the metro, the underground, and then returning back to the surface, which is basically kind of just like a death sentence, right? Even though they figured out ways to be able to traverse the surface at the same time, it is basically a death sentence because of all the mutants and then all the anomalies and whatnot. Yeah. you know, I think that that is where that is probably the most survival horror aspect of the Metro series, right? It would be very easy to kind of just describe Metro as a horror first person shooter, but I specifically mentioned that it is a survival horror game because of the fact that the survival elements that run throughout this entire series and both, you know, it's something that applies to both exploring the surface and the underground, those features I find to be so integral to the Metro world specifically. It could have been very easy just to like give the player a gas mask and all of a sudden it's like, yep, you can go anywhere as you please. But the fact that it has these survival elements, whether it's ensuring the durability of your gas mask is kept up to, uh, you know, date or I suppose durability um, in terms of being able to charge your gear properly, whether it's a flashlight, night vision, what have you. Um, These little things that, you know, there is the durability aspect to them where it's like, oh, okay, I have to either swap out my gas mask or I have to charge my gear periodically. But I find that that level of survival is perfect for a game that is so heavily focused on combat. It doesn't feel as if those elements are sort of overshadowing, if you will, the roots of the core combat of the game, right? I think, you know, you mentioned Fallout. Whenever I've gone back and played some of the older Fallout, specifically New Vegas, you know, there is this like hardcore survival mode that you have to worry about food, water, radiation, all these Mm. different things. Well, radiation more so than normal. But, you know, I always found that like those features being added after the fact for me personally never really worked in a way that felt like it was integral to the overall experience. It felt like, oh, this is just adding these sort of, uh, you know, uh, roadblocks, if you will, to my normal progression of play. Whereas with Metro, narratively, it, feels very it doesn't intuitive. make sense, does it, in Fallout? Because everyone else on the top side is not suffering the same way you are. So it just makes you feel like you're an anemic weakling. You know, it, yeah. Because, <laughs> fair enough, you've been underground most of, these, of the time, but still, you know, it, it's different. Sorry, carry on. So. I was just saying that, you know, it feels so much more integral to Metro, hmm. no matter the difficulty that you play, that. You know, I think it trains the player well enough to just like, okay, in addition to ensuring, 
you know, you're doing resource management and weapon management and these things. These sort of survival elements, I think, are the things that, sure, you maybe feel like, okay, like I don't have to really worry about my gas mask that much. But those are the little details that will trip you up later down the line if you don't pay attention to them. Um, And I think that the game does a good job of communicating that between the various environments. Um, That was always something that I think initially when I played Metro um, all the way back in the original versions – you know, spoiler, I replayed uh, Redux, and that's the only way that I play these games now for the original two. Yes. Um, I think the original game did not do nearly as good a job as Redux does in communicating a lot of those mechanics. And in revisiting Metro Last Light uh, Redux this week, it was the type of thing where it's so much clearer that by the time you're ready to explore your first area outside of the core Mm -hmm. Metro starting location, it just feels like natural. And it doesn't feel like it's it's getting in the way of sort of the experience overall. If anything, it's making you be more calculated in how you approach combat, um, which kind of speaks to the overall, I hesitate to say the sort of sim-like nature to combat, but at the same time, there is this quality where the player really has the freedom to approach combat in the way that they see fit. Well, yeah, you bring up a good point when you were talking about the Fallout mods and how they didn't really connect with um, what they were doing. And the reason they work here is the flexibility they have. You know, the, the systems in place can stretch to work in a difficult, higher difficulty environment, or they work right down to the easiest because there are fun, fundamental bits to it that work regardless. You know, like the ammo choice that you have, you know, there is a type of ammo that is currency, but it's also really fucking good ammo. You know, so you can, use it to take on nastier beasts, but obviously you might need that to buy something later on. And just the ramshackle nature of everything is really well implemented. And the minimal HUD does a really good job of just sort of keeping you clued into what's going on by making you bring things up specifically to, you know, in your hand to find out where you're going, what your next objective is with that compass or, you know, just bring out your watch or just wiping your mask you know, when mm. you know, the condensation builds up or, or anything gets on it. Little touches that you keep having to do that just keep that mindset going that you're going to have to keep remembering this and it doesn't feel like an afterthought. And, you know, that, that is something that is very difficult to do in a lot of survival games is to remember all the mechanics that matter and make them matter even if they do seem like they're arbitrary half the time. And I think having those little extra touches can seem a bit showy, but I think they really do just keep the theme of it running that you're only moments away from potential disaster if you don't you know, fixate on what you should be doing with, with the, uh, the tools you have. Well, the mass condensation is a great example of that. And I think that specifically for that, it's like, sure, it will dissipate over time, whether it's condensation or blood, right? When you get mm. up close and personal with some of those mutants or uh, enemies in general. And yet, at the same time, if you prioritize that over maybe reloading or engaging an enemy that's retreating, all of a sudden your field of vision is completely blocked anymore. So, you know, there is a practicality element to it, but I love that it could have been, like you said, this little feature that it's kind of like, yeah, it's cool, but why would I ever do that when it has a functionality to it that 
you really can't ignore, specifically on those harder difficulties. Yes. Even on normal, like this run through, I played on normal just so that way I could re-experience the entire thing before playing. But I did go back and replay a couple levels in hardcore. And on normal, I always wipe my mask if it's covered in blood just because it's too easy to fall into this loop of, okay, then I back up into a wall and I'm getting lit up. So now I'm dead. In hardcore mode, it is essential. It's almost more important sometimes than reloading yeah. just because of how quickly you can kind of have your, that current run just completely wiped because you get domed. Yeah, this is it. it. It does become almost like that reload habit, doesn't it? Where you are just doing it whenever you have a minute to do it because you're like, I might need it and I might need to do this. And then all of a sudden, yeah, the minute you forget is the minute you need it. And um, yeah, you get into that. I I think I've said it before that, you know, I've got a horrible habit of reloading in games, like after two <laughs> shots every time, no matter what game. Like that. I, ha- I hate getting to the end because it's the vulnerability there that just irks me. So when a survival horror style game gets that right, where it's like, you know, maybe the, um, the reloading is slow or whatever like that, that's, you have to make your shot count and games like that really just satisfy on this one. And I think, Another one of those things I was talking about with the different ammo types, you know, the, the low grade, uh, ammo that's just made in the Metro that you use instead of the currency version, which is like the pre-war stuff. That's the good shit, as you would put it. <laughs> and it just, yeah, you have to take that into account that, you know, this is going to do less damage. This is going to be weaker. It's going to take longer. And, you know, it's always offering you little temptations, isn't it? You know, to, to sort of veer away from what should work and be a little bit reckless and you're constantly reminded of the enormity of being in these tunnels and I, I think that's why the sort of the ocean comparison of the upper world is important because that is exactly what it does feel like that if you were to fail down in the tunnels and let that fall yeah that is what you are you are letting an ocean of madness crash into it and potentially wipe you out for good you know and this is and you go up there you are basically diving the sharks you know and you know naked effectively i think really for all intents and purposes so it's a really fascinating way to go about it with a set of systems like that that just constantly dig at you in and tempt you and tease you without being explicit about it and i think that's genuinely refreshing you know for again it isn't out and out survival horror in the way that many people see that i think it's taking all the best aspects of the first game and the books and really just selling just how limited everything is and you know you can't just pull bullets out your ass you know they are (laughs) there is a limitation you know same with supplies I will say that it does at times feel like I'm pulling bullets out of my ass when I'm doing ranger hardcore (laughs) mode, where it's like, okay, I've pissed through all of the very limited ammo at my disposal from that, you know, the the post-war ammo that is kind of made in the Metro itself that's, you know, pretty shitty. It requires almost like half a mag sometimes to take down some guys. But in terms of, you know, having that backup reserve of those premium bullets... Um, that is sort of like the ace up my sleeve half of that run where I was just like, you know, my frugal nature, typically I don't actually want to use those bullets because <laughs> I want to save up for a new mod or a new gun or something yeah. along those lines. But having that as a backup, I find to be, 
you know, that experience of the given, the sort of like give and take of, do I want to use the really great ammo to get through this encounter? Or do I want to save it for later down the line? Yeah. That plays into the survival elements of this in a way that's nice from a gameplay perspective, but also from a narrative perspective. That's one of those little details about this world that I love. Mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, the, what is the most realistic or the most valuable thing in this world, that commodity, it would be bullets, right? So yeah. the fact that that doubles as currency for a, a world building standpoint, but also a gameplay standpoint, I think even the bullets, it seems even have like a little fire damage or something uh, to them or something along those lines. So it's nice to have that kind of give and take. And again, it comes down to where the player's at in a specific run. And I, th- while I don't think that hardcore ranger mode necessarily works for last light, all the way through because there's some moments where mm, some bits. It, fe- it does feel artificially difficult because you get to these moments where it's like waves and waves and waves and waves of enemies. Granted, in those little moments when you're clearing out like a Nazi checkpoint or something, those moments, I think it works really well because it's this isolated thing where you don't have to worry about the stream of reinforcements or like 50 guys running out of nowhere to come get you. It's kind of like, okay, there's seven to 10 guys in this area. You have to take them out as efficiently as possible. It's later down the road when you're dealing with the monsters that even on normal, those things are bullet sponges. Yes. Um, and in that regard, I find the hardcore mode to be incredibly frustrating. But I will say in those small based encounters, especially in the metro systems, that mode is the closest you can get, I think, to like a survival horror first person shooter. It does that so incredibly well. Um, and I think that the combat being far punchier, thanks to the redux, is largely what makes those moments so satisfying. The fact that not only is using guns more satisfying, they have great feedback. Um, the enemy AI is, you know, it still has its moments where they walk into a wall or something, and they just stand there. But <laughs> overall, you know, I think that they behave far more naturally within an environment or more responsive. Like if you alert them to your presence, they actually hunt you in a way that makes sense. So they take cover in a way that makes sense. It doesn't feel like they're just bum rushing you. Um, and I really appreciate how each of the more linear uh, claustrophobic environments in the Metro that have combat in mind, it feels like there's at least two avenues to take with how you approach each encounter more yes. than just go loud or go silent, right? Um, I'm curious for you, like combat, how was that revisiting uh, over the last week with Last Light? I think it reminded me of why initially I was quite enamored with what it did because I like that it has the options, you know, that most survival experiences, it's either shoot or run away. They're, They're your experience. If you run out of ammo, you're fucked in most cases and you've got to find a long drawn out way of doing things and somewhat true maybe here but it's more integrated you know stealth is an essential part of this you know you can take out lights and things like that you can circumvent certain routes to get behind your know, enemies or get past them entirely so the game's always letting you have these options in most of these especially in the human moments you know when it comes to monsters as you were sort of alluding to with that later sort of stuff the rule set very much changes and kind of doesn't fit uh, the tension and balance of everything else. But I think the best way you could describe that is it's supposed to feel hopeless and uh, over the top. And 
it's just difficult to sort of get that balance right, I suppose, you know. But um, yeah, the human encounter isn't like that. You know, when you know the threat of it and you know how bad things could get, you know, which you very early introduced in this game, if you just come straight to this one, you know, it, you know, Artyom is basically finds himself in, you know, a Nazi base and uh, is having to sneak out of it with a fellow prisoner. It's yeah, quickly shown how bad things are in certain parts of the metro. Um, yeah, not the first game doesn't do that, you know, and the books are very good again at sort of detailing exactly how these factions have come to be, why and like that, and why there's no sort of common ground between them and others. And it's fascinating. And I think I would, even though this veers off on another path story wise, you know, the books really do, I think, serve as a helpful tool for really fleshing out what you understand and enjoy about this world. And so that, with the options you're given, you know, in terms of um, survival, stealth, and, and attacking, really just make it a very authentic experience in a lot of ways. Sure, you know, there are those sections, as you say, where you are just gunning and that's it, but it does try to keep to the core principles of Glukowski's books and just say, no, 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 everything's fucked. You know, what's left is left. That's it. You know, and you are constantly showing little glimpses of that in certain places, in friendlier places as well, where, you know, stuff is limited, stuff is done in a certain way. And, you know, and you see these very different ways of people living, you know, down there. So, yeah, the whole thing is just designed in a way that, fits with that what the game you know the story is doing well i think that in terms of how they sort of take the environmental storytelling and the overall storytelling and sort of adhere that to combat that comes into play with the morality system right yeah. because when you come across certain guards or certain uh you know characters you have the option of either killing them or knocking them unconscious and you know i have a pretty uh tried and true rule of like whenever i came across a nazi immediately killed them but i was a little more you know forgiving for some of the other characters that you encounter but i think that overall that option is a nice one because it does adhere to again that combat that approach to combat rather of whether or not you want to be more disciplined and you want to focus on like light management which i really really love and especially specifically the redux version the lighting for a game that is 10 years old the lighting, I think, in Metro is still like untouched largely by some other games that have tried to do something similar. Um, not only, you know, the ways in which they use light to direct the player through environments, which is something that I completely forgot because, you know, eventually uh, you're going to get to certain sections of the Metro that don't have a lot of natural light in them. And it's sort of in that destructive nature of how like uh, there was a cave in or something. It's difficult to know where to go. But more often than not, you'll find a corpse that has like a headlamp that'll point you in the right direction. So little subtleties like that, but more importantly, the ways in which you can sort of do light management to approach combat. So I can either snipe out a light from far away, then I can kind of like slink along the floor or something along those lines, or just taking out one guy and all of a sudden this whole avenue of an environment now is completely shrouded in darkness because he was the only light source. Um, little things like that, in addition to the mods for guns, which was something yeah. that, you know, after playing Exodus, it's difficult to go back and be like, oh, I can't swap out mods on the fly. Yeah. Um, 
But at the same time, I think that there's enough variation that it really does allow players to kind of become comfortable with multiple avenues of of combat. It's nice that you can also hold, you know, three firearms. So you're not, you know, exactly doom guy and you've just got this unlimited arsenal in your backpack. But I think there's enough variations in the guns. And by the same token, um, guns that are reflective of the world, I think is great because, you know, of course you're going to have, it's a game set in Russia. You're going to have an AK. You're going to have the AK machine gun variant and whatnot. But the fact that you get to actually play around with guns that were built in the Metro that are reflective of the fact that this world doesn't have a great deal of old school, old world guns, but they've got these new school guns that are, you know, ramshackled and thrown together in a lot of ways, but they still are functional in a way that is, you know, not all that different different than if they were their, you know, old world counterparts, but they at least look cool and they look reflective. It's kind of like the Mad Max quality that this game has to armaments, uh, both weapons and also vehicles. That's a quality of these games that uh, I think is really cool, just in how it's able to build, again, this, this own brand of post-apocalyptic in what they're able to kind of throw together in you know, Russia, this environment and what they have at their uh, disposal. Yeah, I think it's one of the most on-brand pieces of satire in the entire series. It's just that idea that for all the things they they struggle to make, uh, making guns is still fine. Still easy. <laughs> yeah. Like that. It's like, yes, they obviously have threats and that's how you deal with them, it seems. But at the same time, it's just yeah, they have a whole system that is based on that, you know, based on the guns, you know, currency is fucking bullets. It, it it's perfect for the story of how you know they got to this point in the first place and how things are still just going you know and that general lesson of like we're not learning from our mistakes and keep making these mistakes i mean the end to 2023 is very much a show of that you know how that all goes that um you know we don't learn you know we don't give the chance we were always going to be suspicious of outside sources and you know that that's the thing running through last light is this distrust of anything that isn't people you know still because everything on the surface is frightening so they must be eliminated you know which you know like um any wartime effort is like what does that really do yeah, it's like, does it really make it better for you? Does it really change anything? Do you gain anything from it? Not really. Yeah, it's like you you maybe wipe one thing out for another thing to appear in its place. It's one of the most fascinating things. And you know, if it was just a video game series, maybe you would sort of dismiss that as being part of it. But you know, there is real stuff behind it. You know, that has been well researched that makes it all make sense and really just adds so much to it. Well, I think that that's why, in terms of a narrative standpoint, I prefer Last Light to 2033 because it really does, you know, play more into the politics of the world and whatnot. And it feels like a natural progression of the narrative that was established in 2033. 2033, it's all about eliminating the alien threat. These aren't mm-hmm. just mutants, these are something more, something that pose a direct threat to humanity. And, you know, what is humans' natural response to something they view as being a predator or whatnot? We have to eliminate it by all means. Mm. And it, it feels like Last Light is a natural evolution or conclu- uh, continuation of that world because it's like, okay, well, 
supposedly that alien threat's dead. So now what are we going to do? Left our own devices. We're going to start warring with one another again. And the fact that they play into the factions, you've got the Reds who are the Soviets. You have the Nazis who go by, I think they just go by the Reich now. But it just, it all feels like a very natural culmination of, sure, we just had the end of the world. We're at this point where humanity is at a place where they feel a little too comfortable almost, despite the fact they're still scrounging and whatnot. What do we need? We need a good war because what else could we be doing with our time other than surviving? Um, And I think it's also why I prefer the first half of the game more than the second half. And it's not to say I think it's this big drop off or anything like that. But I like that the first half of Last Light focuses on the politics of the factions and whatnot and doesn't focus so much on the surface and the mutants and you know, the dark ones again. Um, I will say there's, a, and we'll get to it later when we talk a little more in depth about the dark ones and the conclusion of Last Light's story, but I like the fact that they have a war playing out in a way that feels very <laughs> realistic for a post-apocalyptic story, if that makes yeah. sense, right? You start to see, you know, they have had these sort of one-on-one little skirmishes and whatnot. They're not doing anything really in terms of gaining ground or gaining new avenues in the metro through that. So then they unleash this like biological warfare, which, you know, uh, in post-COVID times, it's the type of thing where it's like, oh man, (laughs) that scene of going through a quarantine zone hits a little differently when you see people that are all fucked up from this virus that's been unleashed and the ramifications for that and people not understanding what's going on and whatnot. Um, It kind of gives a much darker quality as dark as something about the end of the world uh, could be but there's an extra layer to it that i think is far more disturbing on a replay uh, all these years later just the idea that you know people no matter what we're able to survive at the end of the day where we have this self-destructive tendency to just war with one another yeah um so yeah i think one of the main reasons for the change you know in terms of going on their own sort of story here was very quite simply because 2034 as a book you know i think even by glukowski's admission isn't really video game material it, it becomes very much more of a thriller sort of a political thriller in a lot of ways I, I think he described it as an art house thriller and maybe at the time you couldn't really make that kind of sequel because that would just drive people bananas i think but now we probably could have had that but yeah, you know, I think it was the right move. Yeah, you know, all well and good. Um, it's still, I think the reason the first half of the game works better is because it incorporates a lot more of where the books went. You know, with this stuff, and the second half very much is feels more like four A games going. Yep, this is our stuff. This is where we really take it on its own sort of journey and beyond. And you know, for better or worse, depending on how you feel, that that is what Metro ends up being from from now on. But so yeah, so I I can appreciate why they went the way they did. You know, I think everyone involved was in agreement that it had to be the case because you know it's, it would be a very difficult to make twenty thirty four into yeah the kind of uh, story that uh, works for a video game, <laughs> especially after the, the brutalism of the first game. It would have been a very very divisive kind of sequel if they had the balls yeah. to do that. <laughs> That, yeah, I totally understand that. I think that it makes sense why they didn't deviate too much from the formula of 2033. But at the same time, I'm a fan of the fact that, you know, narratively, they did 
expand more into, again, sort of the politics of, if you will, of the factions and the metro system in general. Um, I think when you move away from that, I guess ultimately, I just don't find the back half of the game as interesting because the surface world, as much as I like the contrast between the claustrophobia of the metro system, the intimacy of the metro system, and then going up to the surface, which is like the ruins of the old world. And, you know, at times, I think there's moments that fighting the mutants and the beasts and whatnot can be exhilarating. It just it feels a little too foreign almost to how the series begins. I guess Metro 2033 probably had the same kind of issue, but uh, it's more so, I think, in Last Light because you're on the mm-hmm. surface for so much longer. And the enemies at that point feel so much more like bullet sponges to yeah. a certain degree. Like no matter what difficulty you play on in uh, uh, Last Light, when you're fighting humans – it's like, okay, unless they are wearing a helmet, if a headshot's a headshot, it's going to drop them regardless. Yeah. But in terms of like the beasts, I can shoot a beast in the head three times and it's not going to die in hardcore mode. I have to do it, you know, X number of times. And it's like when you're doing resource management, it feels too much a contrast to playing the game smartly early on. Whereas if you just don't have the right amount of bullets, some of those encounters just feel insurmountable. Um, but I think... One thing that I do want to dive into a little bit more is not necessarily just the narrative of Last Light, but the approach to environmental storytelling and some of that atmosphere that we yeah. sort of briefly touched upon. Um, but I'd like to take a quick break before we dive into that, because uh, as people will find out, I have lots to say about that, <laughs> and I'm sure you do as well. And we are back from our break. And one thing that I was incredibly taken with with Last Light this time around, it's something I appreciated with 2033, but I find it to be even more so in Last Light is the environmental storytelling. Not only the fact that the metro system has a great deal of history to it, but the environment itself feels reflective of that. And that plays out in a couple of different ways. That plays out not only in exploring the individual metro systems and seeing how people are living amongst different factions, seeing how people are living in terms of like looking in on one little room, which is a feature of the Metro series I've always loved, where, you know, you inevitably at some point, Artem gets knocked out, he wakes up in a facility, and then he wanders through the general populace, and he can kind of like, look in on the lives of others. Yeah. And that usually means he just is like a voyeur staring into somebody's bedroom that's big enough for a desk and a bed. But Mm -hmm. I find that a lot of those environments do a good job of telling individual stories that are just varied enough that it gives you this broader look at what life is like. And, you know, even past something like looking in on somebody's bedroom or whatever is just the overall construction of the metro systems. The fact that they all look like these ramshackle sort of refugee encampments, if you will. Um, The fact that you get to see what their marketplaces are like. You get to see what their, um, you know, uh, farm essentially is. You see people growing plants and crops and these things. In one of them, it's an entire fishing community. People chowing down on irradiated fish, which, you know, when you're starving, it probably makes uh, for a pretty tasty meal. But it's the type of thing that, you know, there's not a great deal of, I think, dialogue or rather exposition about each of the different areas you visit. More importantly, the environment is a reflection of those environments, uh, or rather those people's stories and their current situations. Um, That was something that I was really, really taken with, and I'm sure we'll get into uh, a couple of specific examples on that. There's something about this world anyway, as I already sort of alluded to earlier, that the books really help that 
and you know, interestingly, we, I was talking about you know how this game is, you know, where the game is you know going veering away from where the books were. But the interesting thing to note here is that last night, you know, essentially then ended up uh, inspiring Glukowski when he made Metro 2035. So parts of that story then ended up bleeding through to what he did. And in turn, other parts of Metro 2035 ended up becoming Exodus. You know, so it's, I love that the cycle just kept going back and forth. And it's just this, you know, when you have adaptations a lot of times, especially in video game terms, it always seems to feel like it's one way and there's a lot of take from what the author is doing. You know, a lot of, um, you know, we'll do what we want and because this works better and understandable because different mediums and all that. But there seems to be a real sort of connection between the two. You know, Kukowski's fine with them changing things, fine with them going certain directions and enjoying what they do with it and not being precious. He's not being an Alan Moore type you know, where he's just fucking <laughs> pissing on anyone's chips for daring to change anything. <laughs> and I, I respect that because I don't know, maybe it's just something about you know, the person he is and where he came from, you know, in terms of journalism and the things he had to cover that he's just a bit chill about things like that. But it, it was a really fascinating sort of thing to sort of have this back and forth between them, you know, that the, they sort of almost collaborating in the end on the, both series and to influence each other in, in that way. That's really healthy. To see video games influence an author, you know, who's written you know, award-winning books, it is impressive. You know, I know, I know he obviously he helped out on these things still, but, that is something, yeah. You know, it is rare in video games that you have that kind of thing. Well, not to take too much credit from 4A games and what they're able to craft with those environments, but I think that there is a journalistic eye to the level of detail in the Metro systems that could only be influenced by something that was written by an author that either has a journalistic background or an author that is cognizant of the fact that Sure, you have this post-apocalyptic setting, but the stories of the people within it are what really make the world pop in a way yes. that feels relatable or at least make this fantasy setting feel believable and be investable in other than just, you know, we want to see the good guy win kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that what I didn't really appreciate on my first playthrough of this, that is definitely an improvement over 2033, and I would say to a degree even better than what was done in Exodus is – the nature of like the eavesdropping on conversations that yes. happen within the world. I would say 90% of the conversations that you stumble upon when you just are walking through a metro system and eavesdropping on people having a conversation have no bearing on Artyom's overall tale or any real significance to, I suppose, his current task, if you will. A majority of them are people having conversations about different things that are happening in the metro system whether it's the war that's brewing between the Soviets, the Nazis, and Artyom's group, whether it's you know something that is tied to a current state of a specific metro system, some type of conflict that's cropped up and whatnot, or rumors about like what's happened to a squad that went off on a mission and just never came back. And the fact that when you hang around, these are conversations that go on sometimes for like a couple of minutes. It's not just like you stand next to a soldier and he's like, do you hear those people got killed? And the other guy's like, yeah. And that's the end of it. It's these full fledged conversations 
um, that I think they just they do a great job of just fleshing out the metro more, or just at least the vibe of the world of the metro. Because for a majority of the environments that you're exploring, these people are not in immediate danger, right? There's a war brewing and whatnot that will affect them. You know, of course, the mutants are at bay because of the big door, you know, the silo doors that they have and whatnot. But it's kind of just like being plopped into a town square at times and picking up on gossip and lots mm. of little details like that, I think, invested me far more in Last Light's narrative and world than actually Artyom's tale. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that it's the weakest part of Last Light, but it's not the part of Last Light that I necessarily like had a ton of investment in. It's like, it's the good guy that is learning this morality tale of the fact that, yeah, he eradicated all these perceived enemies in the last game. But then through the course of Last Light, you mm. learn like the Dark Ones are not really the enemy. Like man is the greatest monster of all, right? Yes. But I find that I appreciate the world so much more just from hearing all these little anecdotes from the random people that uh, you encounter. And just the fact that their dialogue doesn't feel like sort of stock standard dialogue, if you will. It feels like, oh, this is actually like a conversation that people spent more than 30 seconds thinking about, which oftentimes I think that's how I would describe a lot of like NPC dialogue, if you will. Yeah. And again, it's one of those things that seems to have expanded in that time before the games and after. Well, you know, there are a huge number of short stories connected to this universe that aren't written by Kodkowski, they're written by other authors from different perspectives that don't even just take place in the regions we've already been in. You know, they take, even in, some of it takes place here, you know, in my country and, you know, stuff out in the Baltic Sea and stuff like that. And that really does just sort of add so much flavor to this universe. And I think because it all begins with this great solid core of, um, you know, writing and law building for this world that you know is so grounded in reality to begin with that everything else being told from a different perspective works you know like that so and I think when you get these little moments and stuff like last night and even in Exodus I think as well there's a bit of it but yeah it really does just give you like outside perspectives on what the world is like since all this happened like that, they they do feel different because, as you said, Artyom is not so much a character in this game as a conduit. You know, he you you are just seeing things through him and experiencing them that way, which is perfect. And you know, they were going for that Half Life Two vibe. <laughs> I was <laughs> you know, so, that was going to be what I was going to say. He's like the the Gordon Freeman of the apocalypse, yeah, right? But, and that's perfect because if that's what they're going for, that's what you want. You want someone where everything flows through them and you are experiencing it through them. You know, he's, you know, in the books it's different. You know, he has personality a bit more than that. And maybe that's a slight knock on the games is that, you know, it's hard to care about some of his story elements as a result because he is so flat as a character. But, you know, I think it makes that, um, sex scene, you know, um, after <laughs> worrying about if they're going to die of a deadly virus to have that scene. I mean, it's an early 2010s sort of thing where the games just love doing that far cry free. Uh, especially is uh, has a uh, one in its ending for fuck's sake. So well, there's a brothel <laughs> that you can get a lap dance in from a nude woman. So it's the type of thing where it's like, yeah, that was one of those moments where I was just like, yeah, this is indicative of when it was released. But 
Sure, um, but yeah, yeah not, it's uh, yeah, it's not being prudish to say that. It's just I get it in the context of where they're going with story because in story when that sex scene happens, it's very much a fuck. I might die from this like that, and I don't know what's going to happen. And it's a, an emotional connection, but doesn't quite work as a moment in a video game because some things are not explored as well in, in video games. And that's one of the things that it just can't get right sometimes. Yeah. And I think during the early half of uh, the last decade, there were a lot of examples of just sort of whiffing that particular hit. Well, I think one of the points that's always been a little awkward for me with Last Light was the fact that the loading screens that have text on them to basically act as a refresher and a primer for what's to come next the fact that those are voiced, I wish that they weren't just because mm. he doesn't speak in the games. So the fact that those loading screens are narrated by him are the types of things where it's like, okay, if I'm reading this, I understand that this is like a journal entry or something. And this yeah. is just a, a recollection of what has happened and what is about to happen. And yet the fact he doesn't have a voice in game, which I think is a positive, right? Because he is a conduit for this world. At that point, it's like, okay, I don't want to hear him speak at all then because the writing that is coming up there, it looks like a journal entry. And to have that narrated, it's just like, okay, like, yeah, I got it. I don't, he, like, he doesn't need to have a voice for that. I'm perfectly capable of reading that. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's like a little nitpicky thing for me. But I wanted to get into a couple of examples of environmental storytelling in this world that I think is done so well. Um, you know, early on, granted, I should probably back up. I have not replayed a Metro game in quite a while since Exodus, which Exodus, given the nature that it is this open world experience and there might be one or two linear chapters in that, I don't think the environmental storytelling is nearly as good as it is in the previous two games just because it doesn't have to rely on that because yeah. it's this open world. But at the same time, you get to know more intimately the members of Artyom's squad and Anna and all these things. So in revisiting Last Light and not having revisited the world in a while, very quickly I was reminded of the stakes of this world and just what the sort of sort of struggles, I suppose, of people are day to day. So you, there's one section where you're leaving the metro early on and you kind of force this blast door open and you just see a stairwell that's filled with bodies. And you probably assume like, oh, yeah, like the Nazis or the Soviets got them or the mutants got them. And then you realize that these are just refugees that were trying to get into a station. And the reality of like, sure, you see all these people in the station in the metro, but there are countless thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people that were trying to get into the metro system that either weren't lucky enough to get there in time or they were deemed as being you know, infected or something like that or, yeah. or mutants, according to the Reich. And it's the type of thing that you're immediately reminded of the stakes of the world itself. And that just because you get a firsthand account of like what a life can look like in the Metro and it's, you know, with uh, the war notwithstanding, you can be like, well, people could survive if they don't leave the Metro system. Yeah. But it's getting to the Metro that is still a daily struggle. And even if, you know, by chance you're lucky enough to find a Metro station, you're not going to get in necessarily. It's not this foolproof plan. Um, and one other thing to build upon what I was saying with the quarantine section, in terms of the quality of the dialogue that is you know, happening in these little eavesdropping segments, when you're going through, you find out basically that one of the factions has released a virus into a metro station to eliminate them. 
and whatnot. And then you walk through the quarantine of people that have been infected and they're dealing with the, you know, the illness that they've contracted. You eavesdrop on a soldier and a doctor's conversation and the doctor is like chastising this guy for getting himself infected and infecting other people and whatnot. But then he wraps it up by saying like, well, you're relatively, your symptoms are relatively mild. So there's a good chance that you will survive because we have seen a number of successful cases with your condition. Mm. And then you go around the corner and you eavesdrop on another conversation between a doctor and a nurse. And the doctor reveals to the nurse that only two people have survived so far, despite the fact they had mild symptoms. Mm. And those are two completely missable interactions if you're not taking the time to stand there and listen. And those are the qualities especially specifically on a replay that I absolutely love about the layer of depth that is in a world such as Metro. It doesn't have to be ham fisted cut scenes and whatnot. It doesn't have to be these moments where you have characters that monologue for, you know, minutes at a time. It can be these completely missable moments, but if you're invested enough in the world and you want to learn more about it, there is more depth there than just what's on the surface. Yeah. I mean, it's very much a game of, um, trying to keep you at its pace rather than you trying to forge ahead you know and while you can do that and it allows for that to some degree it really does just pay to sort of soak up the atmosphere and it gives you the chance i mean it's one of the best early examples of finding that sweet spot of what shooters have become what shooters could have been in the past with the likes of half-life and where games were going in terms of, you know, the narrative adventures that we were getting, just starting to get then, you know, that, that would end up being successful, you know, in that year and beyond. And so, yeah, it's one of those games that manages to sort of balance all those things together and make this perfect package if you have time, but gets a little conflicted in trying to make that work for everyone. I think if someone has the idea that this is a shooter, a survival shooter, they don't really give a shit about the other stuff. That They're going to walk past it, ignore it if they can, and or go into the combat because that's what matters to them, which is fine. I think it's just enough, it goes back to the idea of systems and things that are flexible and allow you to play the game how you want to play it. And while it still wouldn't work for everyone necessarily, I think that is so crucial to why last light works as a game is that you have such an accessibility in how it plays out you can just play it as a shooter if you want and just skip past a lot of the 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 minimal stuff but if you really dig and just go into those sort of situations these conversations like you're saying and you will just find all these little nuggets and there it most feels like it's source material you know you know from where it came from in that you have these little anecdotes moments you know things outside what you are and your own personal experience and i think that's crucial for really building this world and i think you know, as i said to you earlier it's easier if you read the books because you have that knowledge almost beforehand with a lot of the stuff but so you know coming into you could just skip past a lot of it and go yeah i get it i get it like that but because last light takes its own sort of path and you know it goes on this like redemptive arc from the first game and book you know i think 
that was important. You know, I think it was really important that you had that as a core thing for it because everything is informing what Artyom should do this time, where he should go, how he played things out. Because again, your morality plays a part in how this story goes. And it ends up being this, you know, tentpole moment where you are just getting to the end of it. And depending on what you've done so far, it's going to determine where the story goes. And again, as with 2033, you know, there's a canon ending and that goes into the next one. But it's interesting that both feel viable, you know, when you do get there. Yeah. And I think that it's probably the element that they explore in the second half of the game. Uh, While I said, you know, second half is not my preferred portion of the experience. I think that what I'm appreciative of is the fact that Artyom's own morality and, you know, that is explored with the more supernatural aspect of the storytelling, which is when, you know, the dark one child that he tried to kill in the beginning of the game, or he was at least tasked with killing, um, you know, that plays in as almost like a companion at times. And the fact that they introduce this aspect of the uh, more like visions in terms of like showing Artyom the destructive nature of what happened initially when the missiles fell or the fact that, you know, it relates ultimately to like his own childhood and whatnot and his connection to the Dark Ones. Uh, I think that makes for more memorable, I suppose, set piece moments in the second half of the game, even if the moments that lead up to those are probably not my favorite. Like there's a section where he goes to this area called like the City of the Dead, if you will. And, you know, exploring that and then getting flashbacks to like these individual stories of what happened before the missiles fell and then his own and whatnot. There's one in particular that is incredibly disturbing where there's a flight over Russia as the missiles are falling. They get hit by an EMP and you see these people in their final moments, Um, even how the game opens. Like the game opens with you embodying this member of a small squad and, you know, the dark one essentially like corrupts their mind or something and then they think they're shooting beasts but then they're just mowing down their own allies and whatnot like there's an interesting approach to the storytelling in the second half that has more of a psychological element to it that is devoid from the political focus of the beginning of the game that i think ultimately might not be as compelling it's still it tells a story in a way that i think is easy to engage with from a video game standpoint rather than you know maybe just a novel or something, not saying they couldn't tackle that, but I think they find ways to continue the storytelling in a way that feels more in tune with a game yeah. uh, and, you know, continuing that kind of streak, if you yeah, will. Yeah, I mean, that, that comes down back to what I was saying. You know, it, it really does just take the route that works best for making a video game, which is you know, understandable. Like I said, we were very much at the burgeoning end of, this, you know, whole narrative adventure thing that maybe this sequel a couple of years later, they might have turned around and gone, you know what, we'll, we'll do something that's a bit closer to what came up but with uh, 2034, but they didn't, and I understand why not, because your fans of the first game are going to be, let's be honest, in it for the hardcore survival nature of it. You know, um, as much as the story is there, and that's really a bonus for, for many people, it was never going to be the thing that sold people on a sequel. So, yeah, it was, like I said, the right decision, the way they went. And uh, like I said, it it ended up being beneficial for both 
Fauré and Fokolkovsky as well. So it's a win-win. Yeah. I think also, you know, they spend a great deal of time on the surface in the second half of that game. Yeah. And I will say that I think the handling of the surface environments has a bit more variety to it than just what was done in 2033. And maybe that has something to do with sort of, it's not exactly a day-night cycle, but you spend enough time on the surface that you're on the surface during the daytime. And then that contrasts to later portions when it's at nighttime. Yeah. Um, and between that and then the catacombs, which, you know, is, of course, another underground section, but it distinctly looks different than a majority of the other environments that you explore underground. It doesn't just feel like a continuation on the metro tunnel, if you will. Um, and the fact that the atmosphere down in those catacomb sections was something that I thought was actually a strong point of these games because you get to one section and you can't use your tech. So you're, you know, completely reliant on that lighter, which, yeah. you know, not only helps obviously light torches and help you get through an environment, but at the same time, um, you encounter like cobwebs that you have to burn. And then of course you get to that moment. That's like a jump scare every time where this little spider scurries across your screen, kind <laughs> of like it's on your face, which makes me jump no matter how many times I play this game. But ultimately I also like the fact that like you get to see them build these different structures down in the catacombs and whatnot, which again kind of shows how humans have had to adapt to the world and whatnot. And if they're going to make these, you know, underground catacombs and uh, transportation avenues, then they have to, you know, further the tech and whatnot. Um, But overall, you know, Last Light does what is indicative of my favorite sequels, which is it provides an experience that feels bigger, not only from a production value, but also from it's more cinematic moments. Like the game yeah. ends with this massive standoff, which is a moment that's completely at odds with how the rest of the game plays. But that's how the finale should play when you've been building up to this war where basically yeah. the player has like a minigun and they're just mowing down hordes of Nazis and whatnot. Like that's a perfect primer for the ending of this game. Yeah. I thematically as well, it works with where they're going with the story and this whole idea of like repeating history and, a chance at redemption, you know, to see if you can right the wrong of the, the previous time. You know, the canon ending for this does that perfectly, where it is like a a twist again on what they did for the ending for 2033. And I, I like that for it because the other ending would end with no exodus. So that, that, that's, um, you know, that, that would be uh, unfortunate in its own way. But either way, they work, and I like that. When you have two endings that make sense, at least, you know, as much as there's something about them that is a bit jarring in terms of how they're presented, I think at least thematically they make sense for where they were going. I'm curious, you know, while we're talking about Metro, how did you feel about Exodus opening up that world so much more and quite literally becoming open world? Because uh, that's one of those things that initially I was very taken with, and then on subsequent playthroughs of Exodus and then in revisiting Last Light uh, this week, I have uh, I have some thoughts on that <laughs> just that change to, uh, you know, gameplay format or world format, if you will. Yeah, I didn't like it. But, um, yeah, I, um, it's, I mean, we're talking about Last Light because it's yeah, the 10th anniversary of that game. But all the same, it's not just about that. It's the standout game. Yeah, not... Not maybe the standout story, not you know whatever, but I think it just that middle ground where it gets everything right, you know. And I, I found that with so many games of that era, 
where there are sequels to like games that did well or had a cult following, whatever. And so I think of um, Batman Arkham Asylum. You know, lots of people think that's the best one because it's so self-contained. But there's something about what Arkham City does that's just amazing. You know, it, again, it just not takes the notch up a level that works. Uncharted 2 takes it up a notch, really kicks into gear. And there are so many sequels like that around that time where you just, you know, you can't help but applaud what they do. You know, Borderlands 2, you know, again, is another great example. However you may feel about Gearbox, Borderlands, in general, I think the leap that Borderlands 2 makes from that first game is just out of this world as a, as a game. So yeah, it's just that perfect time of like technology moving along just enough and confidence being built from a proof of concept that is essentially the first game. Yeah, you know, you are, that's what had to happen. And I think opening up to a wider audience, knowing that at the time, yeah, that, you know, there were certain platforms that wouldn't get to play the first game, you know, because, and, uh, like I sort of said at the beginning, that was the thing that disappointed me that, you know, oh, I don't have an Xbox. So I can't play 2033. Now, like that, and that I was really hyped for it because of the fact that I'd read the books. I was really excited to, to play a game based on that book. But um, it was kind of more exciting to come to last light and see this thing that was alien to what I'd read you know but also still very much connected it's it's a strange one isn't it you know we've got so much there that works brilliantly but exodus is just the, the a departure too far you know how we talk about resident evil and how four is like you, you can say that it is a superb game does so much cool stuff but there's that little thing in there and last light is this game in that regard where you look at it, you go, if you hadn't gone the way you'd gone, maybe we wouldn't have had five and six and the way that direction goes. And Exodus is a little like that, you know, where it, maybe it's just ambition outstrips, you know, faith and, and faithfulness to the original concept and idea, you know, and maybe it was the difference was that, that once again, they sort of borrowed from the author a bit more and we had this back and forth in the wrong way. I mean, is it the fact that the game that they made best out of the three is the one they put most of themselves into, you know, in Last Light and the, the two others are flawed in their own ways because they're following something about it, you know? So who's to say it can just be that that's the way doing trilogies goes in games there are again many examples of the third game being trying to sort of outstrip the last two in so many ways and feeling bloated and not not quite cohesive in the way that they should but you know not to say exodus is a bad game i think it's perfectly fine it's got some good stuff in it and you know looks fantastic on modern consoles especially so that's great but it stops feeling Metro to me, even though I ironically, even though it has a lot of what is written in the books that came after, it still feels less Metro and feels more stalker uh, in a lot of ways, which is 
you know, buying, but it's not stalker. Stalker is what stalker is. This is what this is. And, you know, that distinction is what made them feel like separate entities. Well, we are of one mind on that because playing through Exodus, which is not a game that I didn't enjoy, but I was playing through it and I was like, there's one section of this, maybe two, that feel like Metro. And the rest of this feels like Stalker, devoid of some of the weirdness of Stalker, which I love so much. And, you know, the two sections that I enjoy the most are probably how the game begins, which Mm -hmm. is in the Metro section. And then there's a section that is probably the most linear portion that breaks up two of the open worlds, which is like you explore an abandoned seemingly Metro, but it's filled with cannibals. Those are probably my two favorite sections of Metro Exodus. Not to say that, you know, what they did with the open world wasn't well done, but it just doesn't feel integral to what makes Metro so special. And Metro, and again, that texture, that atmosphere, that's something that by way of how Stalker is constructed, it could never have because it's an open world. It's impossible to fill that world with nearly as much detail. Not to say Stalker doesn't do plenty of things well that even Exodus doesn't. But overall, when Metro has built its bones essentially on the fact that it is this intimate, claustrophobic, richly detailed world. And the fact that a majority of Exodus was focusing on the surface, which I've always felt is the weaker aspect, that was disappointing. Granted, you got to see mechanics be refined and whatnot from gameplay standpoint. The shooting is better than it's ever been. I also like the fact that there's far more on the fly customization in terms of your gear and whatnot. But in terms of a Metro game nailing what made 2033 special, and more importantly, what made Last Light stand out so much... Mm. It's devoid of a lot of that. And it moves away from some of the environmental storytelling that I talked about, specifically the fact that each of the areas that you explore are far less densely populated. So you don't get those little bits, those little nuggets that are so easy to miss. It's more about RTM's current struggle, his relationship with Anna and the rest of the crew, which I'm not that invested in because it's reflective of where RTM is at, not where the world is at. Yeah, I think that's where it sort of starts to differ too much from the visions uh, that both uh, parties had gone on. And, you know, I think you have to look at where the series goes and go, it makes sense. That, that, that that's. Sure. But at the same time, you know, and I can say in retrospect now that maybe that was the time to take the anthology route. Yeah, you know, mm. and break it up into smaller stories like they had done, you know, already in the literary world, you know, where you had these bunch of short stories from different places all around the world, or even a lot of different stories within Russia itself, uh, and you know, neighboring Ukraine. That would be really fascinating to me, and you know, not to say they still couldn't do that, you know, with, with that uh, license now. And I think if I were to get any more games. In this series, that's what I want now. Yeah, you know, seeing as we didn't get it at that time, I completely understand them going that way because yeah. it's unavoidable. Really, you know, it's like it's like you've covered the metro, you cover the metro. Where next? You you have to expand, and I understand that. But yeah, with that comes that problem. You know, I'm I'm not going to sit here and say. I always knew that this was going to be a bad idea, that they never should have gone outside, they never should have expanded. No, I thought it was a great idea before the game came out, you know, that it would be, that you should explore more of the world and find out what is out there. But I just think the way they went about it wasn't quite right for where the games had been and for the sense of wonder. 
it kind of, as you said, just lends itself less to intimate storytelling. Yeah, like I said, Metro Exodus is a great game that I don't praise for being a good Metro game. I praise it for being a good open world first person shooter, which I would rather play something like that over something like a Far Cry mm-hmm. any day. But at the same time, like you just said, it's not necessarily indicative of what the series made its name on because that's what it stood out as back in yeah. the day when it was released originally. And I would say, uh, we would both say, you know, 10 years later, Last Light still stands as sort of a shining example of what made those novels special, but more importantly for, you know, <laughs> for our audience, the games themselves, what made them such a standout at a time when, you know, horror first person shooters were kind of pre-described as being this one type of thing. And then you have this world that feels like it has this massive amount of lore to it, despite the fact for, you know, maybe a majority of the audience that was coming to the game, maybe they didn't even know the book was a thing at that point. Um, But yeah, it's the type of thing. You've definitely convinced me to go back and uh, read 2033. And I'm probably more excited to read 2034 to see what a a political thriller would be like set in that world. Because that's the type of thing that like, yeah, okay. Uh, RTM, the dark ones and all that. It's a great premise for a game. But for a novel, like I'm more interested in exploring more of the politics and whatnot and intricacies of those relationships. I would most liken it to the difference between the Meg, the film, and the Meg, the book. How the Meg, the film is very much a. I I, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it really. It's it just it's there. You know, it's a surface level examination of the premise of the book. Well, there you go. That's perfect. And, you know, the book is just so fucking terrifying in, in how it describes the deep and how the things that happen are so brutal. And then you get the film, which is like, you know, it's Marvel light, you know, which, you know, but is why I'm excited for Ben Wheatley doing the sequel, you know, based on the Trench book, the second book, because that works out as a cohesive whole. Man, that's going to be something. I suspect it won't be just because of the players involved in making the film will probably render it a bit toothless, so to speak. And uh, we'll have the same problem. But, you know, it reminds me that you want a bit of something that works either way, you know. And sometimes you get the perfect marriage where the adaptation is its own thing, but the spirit of it is so much intact. You know, Battle Royale as a book to a film is another great example where it's not as in depth about the politics of it and the, all those things. But by reading the book and watching the film, you, you gain a whole other level to what's going on in it. It doesn't feel so random, you know, and, you know, as much as you get those little details in last night, for instance, about the world and about the people in it, reading the stories from that world, just make it extra special and, yeah, I think you could say that of any sort of adaptation that comes from a book, I think you just have a natural level of description and detail that really builds that world. I mean, as it's proven, it doesn't have to be good storytelling. You know, otherwise, you know, there wouldn't be fucking uh, a Harry Potter reboot going on. You know, it's <laughs> like, yeah, it's just about what resonates with people at a certain point in their life. Wonderful. But, you know, on a better sided example, all the rings is there. People want to know more. People want more. And you can delve so much out of that. So Metro is 
one of those really rare examples where everything just snugly fits together with, I've discovered these books, and then I discover they're making video games, and none of it is shit. You know, it's all great in its own way, and it all complements each other. And I go back to that thing about them sort of feeding off each other, author and developer alike. And generally, that's a net positive. You know, you know, it's worked out for both of them. Maybe not equally in in some cases. I think Exodus is where you could most point to that. But still, you know, I think someone always benefits one way or the other, however they borrow from each other. Well, I think if anything, this conversation's uh, proven that if we ever start a Patreon we need to do a safe room book club once a month to tackle some of these books. Oh, then we may read lots on top of everything else. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> no, but I think that, you know, it's very rare, specifically when you're talking about horror or even games in general, right? With the fact that there is a literary basis for a series, right? And at the end of the day, 10 years removed from the release of Last Light, even more so removed from Metro 2033, the fact that you're able to get two games that more or less are able to capture the feel of those books and those novels, even for somebody like myself that hasn't read them, you know, just based off talking with you and, you know, a couple other people that have read them and are familiar with them. It's the type of thing where it feels like this is not a watered down version of Metro to the degree that something like the Meg might be. Is there going to be the same level of depth in terms of the politics and the world? No, but I will say that, the games themselves feel so rich with those elements that we've just been talking about that it just makes me want to go back and dive into those books even more so. But yeah, I was finally, again, we always mention this when we cover a, uh, you know, an anniversary or something. Metro was always one of those games that was on my list when we were starting the podcast where it's like, oh man, I would love to chat about Metro in some capacity, no matter what the game is, no matter what the anniversary. Um, and I think that in it taking us, basically two years to get to Metro to chat about. I think in revisiting the games and whatnot over the years, um, it's great to finally get to come together and chat about what I think is probably the definitive Metro experience in terms of what really captures not only the gameplay side of things, but more importantly, in my opinion, the narrative and world building of that. Um, so yeah, man, it was great to get and finally dive into Metro, specifically Last Light, but you know, as always, uh, it's a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Until the next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. You can follow our Twitter account for Horror Bites also at HorrorBites underscore SR. You can join our Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast, to chat with us and other horror fans about the genre we all love. And last but not least, you can email us at saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next Monday.